Well, good morning. <clears throat> There's a popular practice by retailers where they will require their associates to display whatever product they may be selling. So if you work in a cell phone store, you're expected to use that particular cell phone. Or um, if you work in a clothing store, you're expected to wear uh, that particular clothing. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, the mannequins in the windows display whatever product it is. If it's a service, you're expected to, to use the service uh, that that uh, particular business uh, is dealing with. And so this practice is called guarding the brand. Guarding the brand. And so the idea behind it is if shoppers, they'll be more likely to purchase something or to use something if they see the employees actually using that particular item. And so it's why they pay big bucks for celebrity endorsements. Because some people, I know none of you, some people are influenced by a celebrity and their use of a particular product. But it also gives credibility to the associate. Uh, if, if they use this particular um, product in promoting. Now, neither discipleship nor the kingdom of God is a business, but we are called, in a sense, as Christians to protect the brand. And we may convince ourselves that we can win followers of God by promoting ourselves, making ourselves more attractive to those around us. But Scripture is very clear what's really important to God, and that is that He wants us to look like Jesus in our lives, in our character, in our manner of living. And so, in a sense, Jesus is our brand. I put quotes around that. And we are being conformed to his image. So the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so instead of of polishing and protecting our own image, we are called and need to be guarding and reflecting the image of God, the image of Christ, which is perfected through Christ in us. And so we attract others to Christ when we put on his attributes. He's the one that is the attraction, not us. And so we need to emit his character. And so when Jesus walked the earth, he could say the kingdom of God is here. And he could point to himself and he could he could acknowledge that in him is the kingdom of God because his words and his actions reflected the will of God, God's words and God's will. And so thy will be done. Jesus is the will of God. And so the Jews had been waiting and had this idea for the, for their kingdom to be this this militaristic and violent uh, oncoming as it would sweep through the land, and it had to be because they were waiting for this Messiah to come in and wipe out their enemies. Those who had invaded their land and taken away their prestige and their power, they waited for him to come in and restore their empire and their power. And so the prophets would speak in terms of the wrath of God against his enemies. But what is missed is how the enemy is not the person standing in front of you. The enemy is the devil inside of you. And so it's the rule of Satan in the hearts of humanity. And, and sinful impulses lead us to sinful actions. And that's all wrapped up in this kingdom of me. And so it's perpetuated by the influence of the prince of the power of the air. And scripture refers to, to, to him as the ruler of this world. And it's not because of his power, but it's because of God's permission. God is allowing that for a time. And, and because of his immense love for us, God allows us to choose. He gives us a choice, and what kingdom are we going to live in? And so people listening to the words of Jesus at this time were struggling with the same choice that we struggle with today. They wanted to regain 
control and claim of their land from, from their enemy, the hands of the Romans at that particular time, which meant regaining control of their lives from the Romans. And we strive today to regain control or influence or voice in our land and in our lives for the sake of God it needs to be our, our focus. But they were all trying to scheme all these sorts of ways to speed this up, speed the process up and bring back the control that they had lost and had so longed for. And so they're expecting victory in this, this world conquest, if you will. And this Jesus comes along now, seemingly to turn everything on its head. And what does he say? Not blessed are the first, but rather the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Well, that's all backwards, right? And then he would say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And he propagated dying rather than living and and losing rather than gaining. And he said that the least in the kingdom of heaven would be more than the greatest on, on this earth. And he propagated being poor over being rich. And it was weakness that he preached. And not strength and serving rather than ruling. And, and of course, we know that, that what Jesus taught in this passage was the exact opposite that enters into the heart of every person that's born into our world. And so, as we've seen in, in beginning in chapter five and verse three over the last couple of weeks, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this goes against all the flow of the humanistic philosophy of our day, everything that the world believes in. It goes against it, pushes against it, and we feel that pressure and that pushback. But it's the only path to true blessing. It's the only path to life, and it's God's rule. This is his kingdom. Come. And so, I mean, listen to the words of of William Ernest Henley, an 1800s poet. And this is from a poem he wrote called Invictus. He says, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And isn't that the mind of humanity today? That we have this unconquerable soul. We, we, we're, we're our own God. We plot our own course. We're our own boss. We're going to do it our way. And so we live on our own terms. And we have our own beatitudes that we've written. And whatever gods they may be, I'm going to make sure that I am the God of my life. I have the say in my life. So I would never say that. I would never say that. There's no way that would come out of my mouth. Perhaps. But my life can sure look like that's what I mean and that I'm my own God. And then this eloquent man comes along and he speaks like no one else who had ever spoken. And he says, blessed are the meek, for they're the ones that will inherit the earth. And so you remember what we've seen about the the political religious leaders of this time, the, the groups that Jesus had been dealing with and would be speaking to who were leading God's people at this time. And so on this mountainside, even if you weren't an official member of this group, you leaned toward one of these lines of thinking. And so you had the Pharisee, the Sadducee, uh, the Essene, and the Zealot. And so the Pharisees were the rule keepers, right? And they believed that God was going to use a miraculous means through his Messiah, through his chosen one, this, this line of David, this next great king, to wipe out the Roman rule. He was going to reestablish his throne in, in, in Jerusalem in a, in a great and supernatural way. And then you had the disciples at one point believe this. And we can hear it even in their conversation with Jesus. After Jesus was resurrected and he was meeting with his disciples before his ascension in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, what did they ask? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time? 
And then you had the zealots. You had Simon, one of Jesus' chosen twelve, who was of the zealot line of thinking. Get out your sword and let's kill them all and let the Lord sort it out and we'll take this kingdom back. And so they want to establish the kingdom by rebellion in the state and then bring the kingdom of God to view. So can you imagine now, in the view of, of these unconquerable souls that Jesus is speaking to, you had the Pharisee who wanted him to, to, to wipe out everything with just the, the word of his power. All the Romans in Jerusalem, just wipe them out. And the zealots wanted to come in, and they wanted to do it through the might of the sword, and everybody die for the establishment of the kingdom and the Messiah and his reign. And so they're going to take the kingdom by force, establish it by rebellion, and bring the kingdom of God into view that way. And can you imagine now, in the view of these unconquerable souls that Jesus is speaking to, wipe them all out. Can you imagine what they thought as Jesus stands on this hillside and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Can you imagine how this must have just blown their minds? I mean, what could they have been thinking now? What they said in their mind? What kind of Messiah is this? Who, who is this guy? We thought he was the one, but listen to him. You know, what kind of deliverer is this? What kind of follower are these people that, are, that, are, that are, are taking this at his word? Who can believe this nonsense? Who's he going to attract and bring with him? A bunch of sissies? A bunch of wimps? A bunch of meek people? <laughs> They'll never face Rome. They'll never conquer it. They're never going to live up to, to, to what God has promised us. They're never going to establish a kingdom with that line of thinking for God and for Christ on this earth. And so to hear his words and to, to follow along and to see how he interacts with, with other people, especially his enemies, to stand beside a criminal, Barabbas, to see this man. This is not our Messiah. We're not going to have any part of this. This, this is not our hope for the, for the future. What a disappointment. And they cried from the depths of their being, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want him. And then the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so they missed the entire point, right? They missed the boat. It's the weak things. The weak things God has chosen. And praise God that He has chosen the weak things. Because God's chosen us. <laughs> he chose me and He chose you. And God would not be using us. He would not have chosen us. If he were not using the weak things, we would not be ambassadors for the gospel of Jesus Christ if God were not using the weak things of this world. Isn't that right? It is for me. Blessed are the meek. Blessed, approved are the meek. Accepted with God are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. And sometimes we think God needs superstars. He needs big, powerful people. He needs big names. He needs bold people. And perhaps that line of thinking is even why some Christians never engage in kingdom work. Because what can God do with me? Who am I? What can I bring to the kingdom of God? Who, what can I really do? You know, so we see some famous person who gets converted to Christ and we think, wow, that's awesome. And they're all over the country. They, they, they ride it on their shoes and they, they're on over talk shows and they're all you know, giving glory to God for, for coming to Christ. And so we say, well, that's awesome. 
But, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not despising that, but we think a lot of that. And we kind of hold them up maybe to a different level. Which is why we may struggle with embracing meekness. Because it doesn't really apply to me, does it? I mean, who am I? So what is meekness, though? Well, maybe it's easier to say what meekness is not. So meekness is not wishy-washy. It's not being indecisive. It's not timid. Meekness is not being unsure of yourself. It's not even to be polite. Meekness is not rule-following or being naturally kind. It's not cowardice. It's not spinelessness. It's not willingness to, to have peace at any price or any cost. That's not meekness. It's not lacking in confidence, for sure. That's not meekness. It's not shyness. It's not the opposite of, of extrovertedness. It's not simply good-manneredness or proper social norms. And it's certainly not a lack of conviction. That is not meekness. And you look up some of our modern dictionaries, and they're going to define meekness as deficient in courage. You look it up and it'll say, it's just deficient in courage. But let me categorically say today that no matter what our modern dictionaries say about the definition of meekness, that is not the scriptural definition of meekness. That's not what it means in the Word of God. And so this original word in Scripture is also used in other places to, 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 to talk about a soothing medicine. So you think about a soothing medicine that takes away the pain. Well, what is it about medicine? Medicine can soothe, it can heal. But if you give the wrong dose or you give it to the wrong person, it can kill them, right? It's also used in, in, in this time, in this language, as sailors would describe a calm, soothing wind. Calm, soothing wind. But what happens when that wind spins up in the middle of the sea? It turns into a, a ravenous hurricane, and it can destroy everything in its path, right? We know what hurricanes can do. Farmers use this word to describe a donkey or a horse that's been broken. And so you, you think about a wild horse that's been broken of its impulses. And so it's useful now for work. And, and you're, you're not going to get on a horse that's not broken. You get on a horse that's not broken, and you will be. <laughs> and so you can kind of understand. If meekness, we could sum it up. Meekness is power under control. It's power under control. And so what does it mean for the Christian? It means to empty ourselves. See, we have all power in our lives. We have it. God can claim it. He can snatch it right from us. But He has lovingly and willingly given that to us. We have all power within ourselves to determine our lives. It means self-emptying, though. It means self-humility. It means self-brokenness before God. That's meekness. It's the person who's dead to their selves. I die to myself. John Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress that he that is down needs fear no fall. And so we cannot exalt Christ to the kingdom rule of our heart until and unless we abdicate the throne of our lives. We've got to give it up. And that takes meekness. And so meekness is a paradox because it's appearing defeated. It looks defeated while being content that we've already won. We already have the victory. And so, blessed are the meek, approved are the meek, accepted with God are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And perhaps you, like me, have kind of been confused by this at times. Because immediately when I read about the Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, meek and gentle Jesus, gentle and mild, 
full of meekness, I asked myself, well, what, what about that temple thing? <laughs> you know, what was up with that? That didn't appear too meek. Jesus in there turning over tables and driving people out with whips. What's up with that? What about when he stood toe to toe with a Pharisee, looked them in the face, called them foxes, called them out and said, you're like tombs, whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. What about that? That didn't seem too meek to me. What about when he turned to Peter, one of his disciples, and he said, get behind me, Satan. Is that meek? What's up with that? But what about the man Moses? Remember Moses on the mountain? He had the Ten Commandments. God had carved them in the stone. What does he do? He looks down the mountain and gets angry at the orgy that's going down below and he throws the, throws the tablets down on the ground and shatters them. Moses, whom Scripture calls the meekest man. What's up with that? Meekness says this. I will never defend myself, but I will die defending God. It's not about me, it's about God. So what do we do? What do we do about that? Well, we turn it upside down, right? We say, I will go to the four corners of the world to save my name and my reputation. And I'll clear out anybody I have to do in order to make, my, make myself exalted, to lift myself up. But when Christ's name is taken in vain, we say nothing. We let it go. We shirk away or we turn away. Or we don't even realize it anymore. And isn't that why the Lord whipped them out of the temple? Isn't that why Moses threw the tablets down the mountain and because of their idolatry? Isn't that why the Lord Jesus could stand and John the Baptist could stand face to face, toe to toe, and recount the sins of a nation and call them to repentance boldly before their faces? Isn't that why John lost his head? Because he counted himself as nothing for the cause of, of God and His kingdom? Meekness is power under control in such a way that you are silent when yourself is at stake. But you, like Christ, you're a roaring lion. You're like Elijah on Mount Carmel when, when, when God's name and God's reputation is at stake. And so blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And, and Darwin proclaimed that the animal kingdom is, is ruled by survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. The zealots would say that God's kingdom is ruled by the mighty, a military Messiah. And you would have the Pharisees that say God's kingdom is ruled by a miraculous Messiah. And the Sadducees would say that God's kingdom is, is ruled by a materialistic Messiah. And then the Essenes would come in and say, no, God's kingdom is ruled by a monastic Messiah, withdrawn Messiah, sheltered from the world. And what did Jesus say? Jesus says, you're getting a meek Messiah. That's who you're getting. And it's only those who are meek who will inherit the kingdom. So we read earlier in Psalm 37, Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do not wrong. And, and I echo what Tommy said. It would do us well. Go, read that entire psalm today. Read that entire psalm. This psalm teaches that we are meek by our attitude towards life. Our attitude towards life. When we esteem others, when we hold others up, and let these words sink in, when we hold others up, we esteem others, and perhaps these words are forgotten because maybe we psychologically kind of rip them out of Scripture. We esteem others greater than ourselves. And meekness grows from our attitude towards life. And so the world is out to get me. Nothing good happens to me. Everything happens to me. Why am I always the victim? 
And so the Apostle Paul moaned about why he wanted to do good all the time. But he was in this constant battle. There's this part of him that's always fighting to, to, to get its way, to do wrong. It's his opposite thing. But our King has delivered us from the grip of our own destructive selves. And so we're free in Christ. We are free through Him. And I don't give myself over now to my own sinful desires. Rather, I give myself over to His Lordship, to His lead, His rule, and I receive strength from His Spirit. And then he writes in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But we twist that. And then Satan grabs hold and jumps on these thoughts. And then we, then we start thinking, if everyone's against me, how can God be for me? Isn't he against me too? And so meekness develops as we recognize that the promises of God available to us through Christ and, and the power of his Christ are available to us through his spirit. And if the spirit of God through his word convicts you today that you're not meek and you, you've got to accept it and then do something about it. We've got to change. And that means not applying the Word of God to the person beside you. Not applying the Word of God to the person behind you or someone you know in your family. Not applying the Word of God to anyone else at home who may be like this. It's first applying the Word of God to me, to you, to ourselves, to our own soul, to our own life, week after week, day after day. Where did Jesus begin? Where did he open our eyes to the kingdom of God? What have we seen? Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their own weakness, their own frailties, their own selves. Those who come to that realization. Blessed are those who accept this, that without God and without Christ, we are nothing. And another big problem with the English word meek is that it rhymes with weak. And those two have been attached together throughout time. Wrongly so. People have linked those two words together for years. A popular dictionary offers a secondary definition of meek as being too submissive, easily imposed upon, or spineless, or spiritless. And so we wonder, why would Jesus say, bless her the meek? For they shall inherit the earth. I mean, look what the definition is here. So inheriting the earth is not referring to, to what we might think of a millennial kingdom on the earth. As the, some of these members of the, the Jews thought. Where we possess this physical dirt. Our future doesn't mean that I've got my eternity is, is, is staked in a large plot of land in, in Montana or somewhere that I've always wanted to go and visit and own. That's not what it's talking about. God's kingdom does not grow and spread and impose its rule through force or coercion. It grows and it spreads and it offers itself through invitation. Invitation from a king that is accepted by poor, spirited, spiritually mournful people. The door of the kingdom is open. So how are we transformed into being more meek? If we have to meekly embrace the kingdom to do that. Listen to Paul again. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses. 
in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as impostors, Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. But how can you have nothing, and yet possess everything? And typically, we see a paradox in the Gospels. It's because there are two different realities that are colliding here. And so, on one hand, you have to die... But by dying, you live, right? That's what we're told in Scripture. Now, this doesn't mean you jump off a bridge, you're going to be resurrected. Step out in front of a car and you're going to miraculously be saved. What it does mean is you have to die to yourself spiritually so that you can come alive in all things. And so how can we be sorrowful and yet rejoice? Well, Jesus was somehow able to to live in both worlds, right? He was able to mourn the loss of Lazarus, while knowing he was about to raise him back up to life again. And so there's this paradox here, but it's easier to to want to explain because it's talking about two different realities and living in the tension of both. And so it's this already, but not yet. It's the kingdom come, but the kingdom not yet experienced, still waiting for the revealing of the eternal kingdom. It's the spirit given as a promise of evidence and yet waiting to fully realize this eternal relationship with God. And to be meek is to understand and to live in the tension of both of these realities. And we do that living with the peace that passes all understanding. So the realities are that you have nothing. And you are nothing. And yet you possess everything. And you are loved completely. And that's the tension. So on one hand, you've got a meek person who recognizes their sinful desires. And they see themselves as nothing. They see themselves as as, as spiritually famished, malnourished, nothing to be worshipped, not deserving anything on their own. And on the other hand, recognizing that I'm a child of God. I am valued beyond all measure, all things that you can even imagine. Everything is mine for the taking. So meekness. Is living in both realities. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. During the Battle of Gettysburg, there was a a Union soldier who hated the Confederates. And so he was wounded. Musket ball took out his leg. And so he's laying there on the battlefield, bandaged up, legs shattered. And so as he lay there bandaged, he he watches the the seminary ridge where he could see the, the, the picket charge. So this last great battle, the South's forces are falling under Robert E. Lee, they're being defeated, and it just so happened, as General Lee was organizing the retreat, he, he and his, his officers ride by this man, and as, as General rides by, even weakened in his state of, of loss of blood and his life leaving him, he managed to raise his, raise his eyes up, raise his voice, and, and he thought in, in defiance, he shook his fist and said, looked at the General and said, hurrah for the Union! <laughs> So General Lee stopped his horse suddenly, and the man thought, whoops, (laughs) maybe I shouldn't have said that. He thought his life was over. So the general dismounts his horse, and he walks over to that man. But instead of of doing anything 
rash. General Lee looked down at this man with such a sad expression. It took all the fear from him. And the general said, son, I hope you heal well. And so this soldier would later write in his memoirs, his letter, he wrote these words. If I live a thousand years, I shall never forget the expression on General Lee's face. There he was, defeated, retiring from a field that had cost him and his cause almost their last hope. And yet he stopped to say words like that to a wounded soldier of the opposition who had taunted him as he passed by. And as soon as the general had left me, I cried myself to sleep there on the bloody ground. And on a hill called Mount Calvary, the Son of God hung nailed on a cross, His enemies taunting Him all around, nailed there by the very people He came to save. The Jews. The Americans. The Russians. The Chinese, the Saudis, Japanese, the British, the Swedes. You spin the globe and put your finger somewhere. No foot has trodden that has not traveled over the back of the Son of Man. And with all the power and the glory of the universe, restrained within his own self-control, he looked beyond the evil kingdoms of the world. And he looked into the eternal kingdom of God. And he said, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. And instead of reacting to life around us with all of the anger and all of the wrath and, 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 and finger pointing that we can muster. Perhaps instead we could do no better than to follow the example of Jesus. And perhaps our prayer should begin with, Father, forgive me. For I don't know what I'm doing. How well are you guarding the brand of Jesus? As Jesus hung there on that cross, He did that for you. And He did that for me. And He did that for now. He did that for yesterday and He did that for tomorrow. As long as this world still spins underneath us. So this morning, will you let Him save you from yourself? As He looks down at you on this battlefield of life, bleeding and broken. You're not laying there waiting for His condemnation. You're not waiting there for His best wishes of, I hope you heal well. But you're looking at His hand outstretched. You'll take my hand. Receive my healing. And be a part of my kingdom. Will you come to Jesus today with your brokenness, with your hurt, with your shame, and lay it at the foot of His cross. And let Him lift you up in healing. Be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the gift of God's Spirit and the promise of eternal life today. And if we can pray with you and for you and encourage you in your walk with Christ, we're going to stand down and sing a song. Will you come?